Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm so glad that you're with me today for this journey of exploring, understanding, explaining, and defending our Catholic faith. There's so much richness here. There's so much great theology here. There's so much encouragement for our everyday life with God. We need not rush through this prayer. Now, at times we have to when we pray it. We kind of say it at a regular pace, but it's also good to kind of put it in slow motion, as it were, with apologies to Ronald Knox, the great convert to Catholicism, from the Anglican Church, the great preacher who once wrote books like The Creed in Slow Motion, where he kind of broke it down piece by piece, line by line, to explore its richness. It's kind of what we're doing right now with the Our Father. And we left off last time looking at the line in the prayer, Give us this day our daily bread. We talked about how in ancient kingdoms, uh, if things were going well, if there was a lot of prosperity, the king would hand out bread, ration it out to his citizens. And sometimes it was free. <laughs> and and that's, that's exactly what King Jesus does for us in this kingdom of God that he has come to set up. And we know that the kingdom is incipient, the kingdom is in seed form right now in the church. And so the kingdom is really here. The king is here in the Eucharist. He gives us himself as the bread. And it's free. There is no cost to the greatest gift on planet Earth, Jesus and the Eucharist. And of course, this kingdom is going to be in its fullness in heaven. After he returns the new heavens, the new earth, it's going to be incredible. And so for now, we got to look at how this plays out in the life of the church on Earth. And again, in this series... Um, I've been looking at a couple of resources that I've been really impressed with. Uh, Scott Hahn's book, Understanding Our Father. I'm going to follow his outline fairly closely today. And also, uh, the great Dr. Craig Evans, his magisterial commentary on Matthew in the Cambridge series. Really well done. And he's got some great thoughts on, on the Lord's Prayer of the Our Father as well, as presented in Matthew's Gospel. And so, when we look at the Eucharist and how it is described in the New Testament. One, one of the verses that people tend to go to time and time again is in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I'm going to just read this to you. It kind of describes the life of the early church. And they held steadfastly to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. Now, there's a very famous Protestant congregation. It's quite large, and it's been very, very influential called Willow Creek, Willow Creek Community Church, just outside of Chicago. It's actually not too far from the headquarters of Relevant Radio in the Chicago area. It was led by a pastor by the name of Bill Hybels, and uh, unfortunately, um, uh, he fell into a, a very public sin, and uh, he is trying to get his life back together. But one of the things that they were very, very well known for was trying to become what they called an axe to community, an Acts 2 community. It was basically based off of this verse that I just read to you, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They held steadfastly to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. And so they really wanted to recapture, as a lot of non-Catholic groups do, they really want to recapture the early church. They want to get back to basics. They want to be like the early church was. Well, a couple of issues with that. Number one, the church was never meant to stay 
in its embryonic form. The church, just like any living being, just like a baby in the womb, grows. And uh, if you look at pictures of me when I was two years old, I look a lot different, probably a lot cuter back then than I look today. Um, you say, wow, I can't believe it's the same guy. You know, he's, he's overweight, he, he looks terrible. But, but yeah, it is the same guy. And, and, and so the same is true with the church. The church is going to grow. It's going to look a little bit different, maybe, than it looked uh, in the beginning, but it's still the same body. And so we, we've already we've got to keep that in mind, too, that a lot of the growth, a lot of the development of the church is directly willed by God. And Jesus said in the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. So that, that's sometimes there's a tendency to romanticize the early church period and say, this is the gold standard. But there, there have always been problems in the church. I mean, just read the New Testament. St. Paul is constantly putting out all kinds of fires in the church. Sinful people, sinful leaders, uh, false teachings, all kinds of fires that need to be quenched. Now, you know, with the water of life and the gospel, the, the purity of the truth. And the other thing that we have to realize when we're looking at the early church is that that, that verse, Acts 2.42 as beautiful as that is, it's, it's kind of difficult to build a whole theology off of this one verse because it doesn't tell us really much about how they did it. Yes, they held steadfastly to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. But how did they do that? What did that look like? When we read the New Testament documents, it's not a quote-unquote how-to-do-church manual. If we want to know more about that, we have to go to the writings of the early Christians, the early apostolic fathers of the church, because they do describe more about what actually went on. Don't forget, the New Testament documents are written primarily to Christians, to people who are already in the church. And so they knew how these things went. They knew what the breaking of the bread was all about, the mass and, 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 and its structure. That didn't need to be spelled out in Paul's letters. They're already doing it. So there's still some little descriptions here and there for sure. But if we want a how-to-do church manual or what it really looked like, we've got to go to the writings of the early fathers. We see St. Justin Martyr writing to the Roman emperor about 149 AD, mid-2nd century, and he basically explains the Mass to him because there were all kinds of rumors and innuendos about what the early church was doing, Rumors about the Eucharist, are they sacrificing babies when they meet behind closed doors? No, it's not cannibalism. That's not what's going on here. We are consuming the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, but it's in a sacramental manner, in an unbloody manner. And so he spells out the liturgy of the Mass, and it's essentially the same that we have today. That's why the Catechism spends so much time quoting St. Justin on this. And so this is really part of what's meant by this clause, this petition in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, a lot of it has to do with the Eucharist. And so a question that we really kind of need to answer here is how frequently did the early church celebrate the Eucharist? How Was it only on Sundays? We do know from writings of not even, even non-Christians, people like Pliny the Elder are writing about what to do with these pesky Christians uh, in his region, this Roman official, uh, Pliny the Younger. He, he writes basically saying that they gathered before dawn on a certain fixed day, and that was Sunday. 
and they would bind themselves by an oath not to do any immoral acts. These are people that you'd kind of want as citizens, don't you think? They'd sing hymns to Christ as to a God, and then they would partake of food. But it seemed like an ordinary and innocent kind of food, he says. And so that's a great example of non-Christians describing what the early church did. And, and, and also, side benefit, he shows that they worship Jesus as God. But how frequently did they do this? Was it just on Sundays? Well, Scott Hahn quotes a couple of early Christians that seem to indicate that daily Eucharist was a possibility in the early church. In fact, Tertullian, who's a writer in the early church period, talks about this where he lived in North Africa. Also, St. Hippolytus talks about this in Rome, daily Eucharist. St. Cyprian of Carthage said this in the year 252 AD, quote, As we say our Father, because he is the Father of those who understand and believe, so we also call it our bread, because Christ is the bread of those who are in union with his body, and we ask that this bread be given to us daily, that we who are in Christ and daily receive the Eucharist for the food of salvation may not, by the interposition of some heinous sin, be prevented from receiving communion and from partaking of the heavenly bread and be separated from Christ's body, end of quote. That is a very powerful quote because he kind of hammers it home that the ideal is to be receiving this bread. And he says bread with a capital B, by the way. It's translated into English, obviously, but this is no ordinary bread. This is Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about this in, in just a minute. But he says, we ask that this bread be given to us daily, that we who are in Christ and daily receive the Eucharist for the food of salvation may not be prevented from this, from, from some heinous sin. So that's really the, the case of mortal sin. And we know that if we're in a state of mortal sin, we have to go to confession, the sacrament of confession, before we can receive our Lord again. That's, that's the rule. That's the uh, standard of the church. And that's why he says, you know, by heinous sin, we might be prevented from receiving communion and from partaking of the heavenly bread and being separated from Christ's body. We don't want that. And if we do find ourselves in that unfortunate situation, God has provided, of course, knowing our nature full well, He's provided for us the sacrament of reconciliation, confession. And you can read about that, a little bit more about that in John chapter 20, after the resurrection. Jesus appears to the apostles and he breathes on them. Oh, it's like divine inspiration, quite literally. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Well, let me ask you this. How would they know what sins to forgive and what sins to retain unless people told them their sins? So this is uh, auricular confession, as it were, uh, right there in the pages of the New Testament. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. This is our series on the Our Father. All right, so that, that's just powerful teaching right there from St. Cyprian of Carthage, again, writing in 252 A.D., well, another th another uh, great father of the church that's quoted by Hahn in his book is St. Augustine. And he talked about, and, th and this I think gets back to this very mysterious word 
that's used in Matthew's text, epiusion or epiusios, and that's translated as daily bread, but we really don't know what this word means. Uh, some people translate it as daily, others as bread for tomorrow, others as super substantial bread. Super substantial bread, I like that one. And that really does have a, have a Eucharistic reference, the supernatural bread that we receive. And so St. Augustine says this, he says there are really three different meanings to the bread that we're asking God for in the prayer, in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Number one, we of course need all those things that meet the wants of this life. Okay, so this is natural bread. Okay, there is that aspect too when we ask for our daily bread. And, and as Craig Evans pointed out, epiusios, another, another possible meaning of this term daily, is the needful bread, the bread that we lack, the bread that we need. Well, we need both natural and supernatural bread, don't we? We need to fill our bellies, but we also need to fill our souls too. And so there's that. There's the things that, that we need in this life. There's also number two, the sacrament of the Eucharist, which, of course, as we've seen, can be received daily. And that's, if you're able to do that, if you're able to get to daily Mass, or even just one extra Mass during the week other than Sundays, you'll see the enormous benefits that it has It'll really supercharge your spiritual life. And then St. Augustine also says Jesus himself at the end of the day. And of course, when we receive the Eucharist, we do receive Jesus sacramentally. But Jesus is our food. He is the bread of life. And so we feast, of course, at the Mass on word and sacrament. The word of Christ in the scriptures, in the liturgy of the word, which is really the greatest Bible study in the world. And then, of course, his body, blood, soul, and divinity, the table of the word, and then the table of the Eucharist. And so God is able to do that. He's able to fulfill our hungers of body and soul. And then Psalm 78, again, a lot of this, the background of this is also the way that God filled his people on the wilderness journey. Uh, Moses, the generation of the Exodus, as they're traveling through the wilderness, it's such a great metaphor for the spiritual life, isn't it? Uh, we are on this pilgrim journey through the wilderness of life. And we especially uh, kind of get this drilled through our heads, especially in Lent. Uh, just as Jesus entered out into the desert, he wanted to really kind of recapitulate in his person the experiences of God's people Israel in the desert. And they, of course, were tempted in the wilderness, just as Jesus was. But God provided for their needs. They weren't always grateful, though, and they always lost focus on God from time to time. And this is what Psalm 78 talks about. Uh, this is a really powerful psalm. It's a pretty long psalm. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to read a selection from this. This is from Psalm 78, starting with verse 11. They forgot what he had done. This is the wilderness generation and the miracles that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he wrought marvels in the land of Egypt in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He cleft rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Now, you would think that if God did all those things and you were to see those things with your own two eyes, 
you would always remain faithful to him, right? Well, think again, because we're no better than they were. Here's what they did. goes on to say, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard he was full of wrath, a fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger mounted against Israel because they had no faith in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet, yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down upon them manna to eat and gave them the bread of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained flesh upon them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their habitations, and they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. Okay, so we could go on. It's a it's a great psalm, Psalm 78, but you see that despite their sinfulness, despite their, uh, their wickedness always turning away from God, he still provided for their needs. He rained down manna to eat, and, and the Hebrew word for manna, it literally means, what is it? It was this flaky substance they found on the ground. It was kind of sweet and, I don't know, kind of wafer-like, but it was, there was only enough for the day. You couldn't try to hoard it or, or keep it in jars. It would spoil. And so there is that. That's, uh, that's one aspect of, of the food that God gave from heaven. But also there is the quail. And that's why in Psalm 78, it goes on to say, He rained flesh upon them like dust winged birds like the sand of the seas. They're just all over the place. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their habitations, and they ate and were well filled, for they for he gave them what they craved. So they're like, okay, we're bored of the manna. We want, we want something else to eat. How about quail? All right, God says, I'll give it to you. And yet, and yet, you know, the ungrateful heart, that's that's the problem that we all face, isn't it? And so all of that, I think, is in the background when we look at the daily bread. There's, of course, the physical bread uh, and, and meat that we need to eat, like the, the manna and the quail, but there's also the super substantial bread. And so th- this is part of it, eh? the, the manna that comes down. But, but again, Jesus provides so much more. And when you look at John chapter 6, that, that great teaching that Jesus gives, saying, I am the bread of life, he compares what he gives to the manna. And how, how it's more. It, it has to be more. So let me just read. The whole chapter is just beautiful. John chapter 6. But let me just read a selection of a few verses from John 6 to you. With respect to Jesus' teaching on the manna, the wilderness generation, and the bread that he's going to give in contrast. So this is John chapter 6. I'm going to start with verse 30 and just read a few more verses to you. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And don't forget that in John's gospel, the miracles are never called miracles. They're called signs. Signs point us somewhere, point us to a reality. 
What sign do you do, Jesus, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And so Jesus says, I've got a better bread for you. I've got something better for you to eat. The bread of life, the bread that comes down from heaven, the bread of God. And they're thinking he's just talking naturally at this point. Hey, Give us this bread always. Yeah, let's, we're here for it. <laughs> let's have it. And then Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then, let me just skip ahead a little bit to verse 41 of John 6. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, They shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Okay, now listen to this part. This is starting with verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now they then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. This he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Okay, so when they start questioning, how can this guy give us his flesh and blood to eat? Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm only speaking symbolically here, guys. No, he doubles down on it. He says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood or else you have no life in you. And and so when we think about the manna, okay, this is one of the reasons why the Eucharist can't be just a symbol. It can't just be bread symbolizing Jesus. It is, it has to be something greater. It has to be something more supernatural. It has to be Christ himself given to us sacramentally, under the appearances of bread and wine. Because guess what? Jesus says this is greater than the manna. Now, the manna was from heaven. It came from God, but it was only natural bread. People ate it. They still died in the end. And and we die too physically, but we will live forever supernaturally. 
uh, if we stay faithful to Christ, he will take us with him to be with him for all eternity. So it says again, this is greater than the manna. If it's greater than the manna, it can't just be natural bread. It can't be. It's not the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And he tells us what the bread is. In verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. He says the bread is my flesh. John 6, 51. So if you don't remember any other verses from John chapter 6, remember that one. So th- this is the ultimate bread that he's given to us in the Lord's Supper, in the Mass, and the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, was really the first Mass. And we get to partake in that one sacrifice of Christ every single time we go to Mass. The bonds of time and space are broken. It's a little bit like supernatural time travel. We are made present to it, to that one salvific event, the death, the resurrection, the ascension. We're, we're there for all of it. And Christ gives himself to us. So what comes next after give us this day our daily bread? It is forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Give us and forgive us. So the focus is really on us. And we have to do something too. In order for us to receive God's forgiveness, we have to be willing to extend that to others. We'll talk much more about that in the next episode of the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. If you have a question about the Catholic faith, I'll try to answer it on the air. You can send it to me via email. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. Or you can try to get your question to me on the X app. My handle is at Kale Clark. I'll be with you later today at 5 p.m. Central for the Kale Clark Show live on Relevant Radio. And I'll see you in the next episode of the Faith Explained. God bless.